This is an after school program podcast. Just a disclaimer for today's episode. Uh, we talk with Josh Landry, which I am was super excited about. Um, and it turned out to be a really great conversation. But Josh was driving from New York back to Georgia. So there are some times where audio cuts out and little glitches happen. Um, so just to forewarn you, also, we do get into some mental health issues. So if that's something that might be triggering for you or something like that, uh, just be aware. It may be, you know, if you start feeling uncomfortable, skip ahead. But uh, yeah, just long to let you know that that is part of the conversation today. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Home Studio Hangout Podcast, where we explore what it's like building, running, and working out of a home studio with your hosts, Joshua Matutek, Andrew Simmons, and many guests in different areas of the music industry. And welcome back to the Home Studio Hangout Podcast. We are here with me, Andrew, my my co-host, Mr. Joshua Matatek. Hello, and we have a special guest, also another Josh in his car, catching him mid-drive from the uh, great state of New York all the way back to home in uh, Georgia. Mr. Josh Landry, everybody. What's happening? <laughs> Mr. Sad Boy Music himself. Yeah, that's me. Sad sacks only. Just kidding. Sad sacks only. <laughs> Dude, um, how's the drive? <laughs> um, it's long, very snowy, um, uh, but very pretty. I don't, I haven't visited the north very much at all. Uh, I, the last time I was in New York was like seven years ago in 2016, so it's been quite a while. Um, but uh, it's been all right. It's been quiet. It's nice to get out for a bit, see something different, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and you were there producing? I was. Uh, I was doing a couple of songs for a band from Long Island called Nowhere Left, uh, just some friends of mine. Um, and then uh, stopped in Williamsport and worked with my buddy uh, Lee Fenstermaker on some stuff. Uh, his artist name is Sorry, S-R-Y. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I was there visiting his family, too, because uh, we're, like, pretty close. Well, we've grown pretty close over the last couple of years with some personal stuff. So it's been uh, it's been nice. The trip has been really nice. Yeah, it sounds kind of cathartic in a way. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot to that story. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's been nice to get out and see something different. But I'll be honest uh, – I don't ever want to drive through New York City again. <laughs> I bet not. And a half driving through Queens. I did. Uh, I did when we were on a run one time. I I drove a fifteen passenger with a trailer through the middle of New York, and it was not fun. Oh yeah, dude! Last time I was in New York, that's exactly what we did, except. Uh, we made Lee Rouse drive the 15,000 trailer. <laughs> Dude, I will never forget. Uh, at the time, we all like smoked cigarettes like a bunch of delinquents. Um, and uh, he literally like pounded a pack of hundreds while driving that city, dude. Like he was just sitting there freaking out. We accidentally went through uh, 
we went through a, a route that you're not supposed to take with uh, like oversized vehicles. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know how New York is routed like van and trailers or like semis. You're supposed to take very specific routes. And we didn't yeah. know because we're from Atlanta we, and we had never gone. So we had no idea. And uh, so we're going through this tunnel that we barely fit through. Uh, and we're like, this is kind of weird. Like, um, we get to the other side, we're about to get into Manhattan and we got stopped. I can't remember if they were just regular cops or if it was like SWAT or something, but we got stopped and they made all of us get out of the van, uh, and open our trailer, um, and completely stop all traffic from Brooklyn into Manhattan, which is a big deal, right? Yeah, that's huge. Uh, And they were asking us if we had any explosives, we're like, are you looking at us? Like, <laughs> we're just a bunch of scummy band dudes, like off to like play a show. <laughs> and, yeah, I that both times driving through that city were just absolutely awful. We came home from that trip with about like eleven hundred dollars in toll fines and tickets. Golly! Like, and I know I'm about to get some in the mail from this trip too. So, <laughs> hell yeah, New York. That's 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 tra- that's on traveling. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's awful. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't choose to be there ever again. But I'll uh, I'll visit if someone else drives. For sure. Yeah, just make Lee drive again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd love it. <laughs> I'm sure he'd I'm sure he'd be ecstatic <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, well, dude, because uh, I feel like you haven't really done a lot of talking about yourself too much that i found um when like doing some research i think you've done like maybe one or two podcast episodes of other things but yeah i've uh i would really i was just no no i was just gonna say i've i would be really stoked that you could like give us some backstory on you yeah um so yeah i uh i was born and raised in new orleans louisiana um and uh, I lived there till I was about 12 years old. And then uh, Hurricane Katrina happened. Um, and that ended up kind of uh, relocating my family to Atlanta. Um, and uh, at the time, I was like a little punk, idiot, skateboarder kid. Um, and uh, all I had interest in was just skateboarding and like hanging out with my friends. And to be honest, uh, that storm definitely... Uh, wrecked me in a lot of ways but i think my life ended up way better uh because of it um i don't think i would have gotten into music at all um i think i probably would have just ended up being some dummy deadbeat druggie um who eventually quit skateboarding and only hung out with his friends and did horrible things um (laughs) but when i got when i got to atlanta um all of my friends uh were gone and it was just me and i had to meet new people and um funny enough like pretty much everybody i met i was in like sixth grade at the time everybody that i met played music um and i just thought it was like so cool and i wanted to be cool right it's like what everybody like when they first get into music i swear it's like it's almost like this thing where it's like uh, like i want to be the cool kid who like has something extra to it um and you get into it for all the wrong reasons because you're like 12, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, ended up changing my life in a lot of ways. And so I, I was really bad, obviously, as most people were when they start playing music. Um, 
<laughs> at a really young age. But uh, yeah, I ended up just kind of going from like skateboarding with all of my friends to playing music every day with uh, all of these kids that I got along with. Um, and they ended up being my friends all throughout like middle school and high school. And we were in a bunch of terrible bands, and, you know. Um, yeah, I'm going to get like way off track if you don't keep No, you're this. good, dude. No, you're, you're on track but, right now. You're on track. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, yeah, eventually it got to the point I was in high school. This is where all the juicy story stuff starts happening. <laughs> um, but I, I made it through school till about 10th grade. Um, and, uh, I remember I couldn't really like function. It was weird. All I could do was like sleep. I was just exhausted all the time. Um, and, uh, I had, like started to kind of find out, uh, how depression affected people. Um, it started affecting me from a really young age and mental health issues, like kind of run in my family. And, um, so I started having a really hard time and all I wanted to do was like just play music. Um, and so eventually I started going to a doctor and, uh, figuring it out. And, um, it got to a certain point where like I was flunking high school so bad, but what I was doing musically was like making my parents like really stoked. So they like allowed me to leave school. It was like really weird. That's like, cause really cool. My parents, yeah. My parents always to, like advocated like to stay in school like my parents were never gonna let me drop out but it got to a point where my dad was like I was working in guitar pro at the time um that was like what I started like making music in um was just like crappy tab programs and stuff like that and um I would always show my dad what I was working on even though it sounded like RuneScape you know what I mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> Because it's such a specific songs. reference. The RuneScape songs <laughs> that went knows, dummy. That's a, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's just like crappy little trumpets on RuneScape. Um, <laughs> Bro, do you think that they have my, those songs on Spotify? That's the real question. <laughs> the RuneScape songs? I need yeah. them. I'm the jam. Probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, my dad was like, do you really, like, if you really want to do this, like, I believe in you. Like, I'll let you leave school and you can just focus on music full time. So by the time I was, I think I left school right when I was legally allowed to at like 16. Um, and that's what I did. I started pursuing developing a band with Justin Bordianu of all people. Um, and uh, yeah, then we spent the next like six, seven years developing that band and writing songs, working with different producers, um, which is kind of what got me into the production game. Um, I met Lee Rouse along the way, um, and he and I were kind of at the same starting point at the time. Yeah. Um, and we just became really close friends and then started our production journey together. Um, now we both run our own studios. I was going to say, did you meet him when he was at, uh, Goldman's spot? No, uh, him and I worked there together actually. Oh, Um, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I met Lee back in 2012. Um, and I remember I went with one of my high school friends, um, to this like barn in the middle of nowhere, Barnesville, Georgia, funny enough, it's called Barnesville. Um, but anyway, so Lee was recording my friend's band and, uh, (laughs) we ended up, uh, 
the band was so bad. Um, and now that I think about it, I was a pretty bad friend because um, Lee and I ended up just taking a break and getting stoned together uh, for whatever <laughs> reason. Yeah. And uh, I remember we were just like kind of sitting there just like really stoned in the studio, kind of laughing at their drummer because he just could not play the song at all. <laughs> and we just couldn't stop giggling. And so like by the end of it, like there was just a bunch of good vibes in the room and I ended up showing him my music. I was in a really kind of not so amazing metal band, uh, but he thought it was cool. And I was stoked that he thought it was cool. So we became pals. Um, and I think it was like maybe six months later, I, uh, I ran into him doing pre-pro for another friend's band. Uh, and it was like around my hometown. So I was like, holy crap, like, it's cool to see you again. And um, I was like, I've got all this MIDI from Guitar Pro. Um, like, is there any chance I can just, like, give you all of the MIDI and we can, like, plug it into real sounds and you'd let me track guitar on this stuff? Um, and he was like, yeah, sure. So I remember at the end of one of his sessions with this band doing Free Pro, like, he plugged in my drum MIDI uh, and, like, all of my, like, synths and stuff like that. And just let me track guitar on top of the whole thing. And it was like the first like real recording that I had heard of my stuff ever. And we just kind of became pals and like just made music together um, for like the next year or so. And then we were broke. So we started doing it for other people. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that's literally how that went. Like we were just making cool stuff, but like we were just bums at the time. Like we had no <laughs> money, like, he lived at his mom's house. I lived at my mom's house. And like, eventually it got to the point where like other people liked what we were just doing for fun. So they wanted us to write stuff for them and produce stuff for them. So we did a bunch of like really bad metal core songs for a bunch of really bad bands. And we got paid like 75 bucks a song. It was pretty bad. We, <laughs> so we made like 30 bucks a week or something like maybe, um, and yeah, we would just chill at his mom's house and eat Hot Pockets and make really bad metalcore songs for a living. And yeah, I don't know. It, and somehow ended up snowballing into a career like five years later. That's like those days that you think back and you're like, how did I even exist at that point? Oh, dude, I think about it all the time. I, To be honest, like um, he and I have been doing this job, man. I mean, 10 years, 11 years now. And mm. I, I mean, we both just started making a living, like a livable, like salary, if you will, in 2018, you know, mm. like, and I, I think when it comes to like production or just music in general, like you have to absolutely like live like a scumbag <laughs> to get anywhere. Like yeah. you have you have to go through it. You have to live like most people can't to live like other people, or sorry, you have to live like most people won't to live like most people can't, you know? Yeah. Um, and Dave I Ramsey. really believe that. I really believe that. Yeah. It's a really good quote. <laughs> yeah, it is um, a good quote. But I mean, yeah, I, thinking about it now, like five years ago, I was living on Matt Goldman's couch, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, Lee had a spot there. Um, he took uh Matt Malpass's old room there, like yeah, and we were just kind of, we were just kind of bumming it uh in midtown Atlanta, just trying to work on anything that we could 
And um, for the most part, we just worked on my band stuff. And that's kind of how he got really, really great at mixing uh, rock because we were just a band trying to make it. And yeah. he, he was the resource that we had to like make it happen um, with production. And um, at the time, I didn't really do much like outside of just songwriting and like playing on the record and then maybe like editing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he and I um, ended up working for uh, Goldman, not really for him, but alongside him. Yeah. Um, in 2016, after my band got a record deal, because I went drums with Matt for mm. the record on Roadrunner. Got um, you. And that's how we all got introduced. Yeah. The, Vault, the Vault 51 record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. Uh, Lee, Lee mentioned Lee mentioned that one, that that record and that whole like span of time. He was like, it was, it was, I, I, and now that you mention it, disaster. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, but it was a, in a lot of ways, it parallels to what he ended up doing with Jaden, like what he did with you guys. Oh, yeah. Like there was a lot, there's a lot of the same aspects, like everybody living super broke, everybody pushing super hard, everybody trying to like be in on the same team and working really hard at the same time. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was, uh, that was the grind with Vault 51 for, from 2012 to, I mean, 2018, like just, we were just grinding every day. Um, and it didn't end up working out, which sucks, but at the same time, uh, I mean, it did lead us both to where we are now. And I was going to say, I feel like you guys both learned a lot from that whole experience as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. Like, uh, it definitely teaches you, uh, who not to work with, who not to talk to and who not to care about when it comes to opinions, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because along the way, uh, in trying to, you know, conquer a career in music. There are so many people in your ear telling you what you should and shouldn't do or who you should or shouldn't be, or, you know, like how you should or shouldn't act. And, um, that can really, I mean, you know, that can really fuck you up. Oh yeah. Uh, And it, it did, um, for he and I both for a long time. I think that was ultimately because we didn't know, like, what the right thing to do was we had never been in that position. So, you know, we were trying to listen to everybody and do the right thing all the time. And ultimately I think that that killed everything, but we should have just done what we wanted to and Mm -hmm. just been ourselves, you know? Yeah. 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 I think that's, it's a hard lesson to learn, but until you're in that position, it's, you know, the, the truth is like you, you got to do what's best for you and your, and your crew. Right. In right. those kind of scenarios, and like I said, it's hard. It's hard to to know to do that until you've been through a situation where it, you didn't do that and it didn't work out. Right. It's just crazy, man. Because uh, we we didn't feel like we were allowed to be ourselves, or like write the songs that we wanted to write, or you know say the things that we wanted to say out of fear of losing the opportunity of like our music being heard, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's funny because um, as soon as I stopped caring about all that and I just started being myself, which was like over the last year, like I've had more success in music than I've ever had before. Just 
Yeah, I was going to say. And it's funny because Continue. I know so many people now that have like, I know so many people now that have like just kind of learned how to authentically be themselves and like just kind of shed that like that weight of expectation from other people. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much more for them because people connect with people being real, you know? And I think so much of the, uh, so much of music now is so like, I don't know, not organic, if that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. just like, it just, a lot of it feels really shammy or like put together, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of like people being raw and real because there are just so many fake people out there, you know, that like, it just makes life suck. You know? Yeah, for sure. I feel like I do feel like the the newer music space, though, it does still have a lot of that like manufactured part that the the real things tend to stand stronger than the rest of them. Like I feel right. your your entire TikTok presence is a good example of that. You're just doing you. You know what I mean? Right. And I feel like, you know, if you weren't just doing you and you were trying to do some, you know, fake thing that didn't feel genuine to you, it wouldn't have translated as well. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because I keep proving that to myself over and over again because I always feel pressed, like, to make content for the sake of making content. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um. And every time I do that, just because I feel like I have to, it never does anything. Um, (laughs) But when I make content, when I'm like really feeling something and I'm just like really inspired to make something that I think, you know, um, like touches on something that I want to speak on, you know, like, or like something that just is parallel to my life or, uh, you know, like my message that I want to put out into the world, like it always does well and it's always well received. So it's just, I don't know. It's hilarious. Cause like I know better, but yet, uh, TikTok still tricks me every day, you yeah. know, or it makes you feel like you have to like continue entertaining people when it's like, it's not about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. The internet sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like the, the, the TikTok space is super polarizing because it is, it's some people that are being extremely genuine like yourself or, you know, like, like Justin, who's attempting to like really like try and tell their story. But then you have other people that are feeding their narcissistic, natures with the algorithm and like for some reason both succeed and that is almost unfair (laughs) oh yeah it's scary i literally saw a video of like this chick um i'm not even kidding i think this video had somewhere around like 67 million views had like somewhere around the ballpark of like 20 million likes and it was literally her uh, responding to a comment that said, please just sit on your phone. And literally it's just her and she looks at her phone and she puts it on her bed and just sits on it. And it's five seconds long. And it's literally just 
mind blowing that I'm just like that outperformed anything that I've ever done and ever will do. And it was all for the sake of like some chick sitting on her phone, (laughs) like (laughs) physically just putting her butt on her phone. And it just makes me so mad because I'm just like, that is not going to matter five years from now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to make something lasting versus trying to just like, I don't even know if that, I don't even know if that's memeing or not at this point. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like that's just, it's almost like a foot fetish guy going, show me your feet. You know, I think it's dangerous, man. It is dangerous. It's, it's dangerous because like, it's this one human being that has millions of eyes on her and like, is just like feeding her idea of herself you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Like, human brains were not built to process what more than like twenty people think of them at a time. You know, for sure. Like, it's it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know. I feel like she's her and people like her are just gonna end up like really messed up from stuff like this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to like dance around what I'm trying to say here, but yeah, yeah, yeah um, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Like, Man, I don't want to say anything like too painfully terrible, but it's no, just like I'm, it it does not, mentally mess with people. Because here's the thing about TikTok is like I can post a video and like I've had a video do like 2.2 million, and I'm like, okay, I'm crushing it. Like I have a chance to do this, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll post a video the next day riding that same wave, and then like it does like twenty thousand views, and then all of a sudden I'm just like, ah, oh, like what's wrong with me? you know mm-hmm. like and that's that's where i think things get like really dangerous with where tiktok is right now where i'm just like i know better but i still fall into that same trap of being like oh like if some algorithm doesn't detect that my content is something people want to see that means that like i suck you know like, yeah self-worth relating to the amount of likes and views and all that kind of stuff is yeah, even more like blown up with the things that are happening of like people literally changing their entire life because of a video. Yeah, man. It's crazy because, you know, um, this entire thing for me, like was never about viewership was never about like virality Mm -hmm. or anything like that. It was literally just like a recovery journey for me because my therapist dared me to put myself back out there again. Um, yeah. And after, after my band got dropped in 2016, I kind of ultimately just stopped playing music uh, for myself mm-hmm. and jumped way heavier into the production game because it was safe. And I think it was ultimately a trauma response of me trying to curate the opportunity that I had and blew uh, for everyone else that I could to prove to myself that like I could still do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, no, it does. And, and if it succeeded, I got to stand, you know, I got to stand next to it and be like, look what I did. And if it failed, I got to sidestep it and be like, oh, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, ultimately my therapist like called me out like really hard on it and was just like, you're just hiding behind other people because like you're too afraid to like, you know, like fail again. And so yeah. that's the whole reason that I started doing this TikTok in the first place. And um it ended up ultimately like working out, but it's funny because along the way, like you really do lose your idea of why you started and where 
um, and it starts like becoming this kind of poisonous thing where you draw a parallel between viewership and virality and your self-worth, um, which is why like um, if if you guys like ever notice at all, like I'll go on like a streak of posting one like every day for like two weeks and then I'll just kind of dip out for like two or three weeks because mm-hmm. um, it starts to get to that point where like I start caring way more about like, oh, like, what are my views looking like? Oh, what are my, what's my, like, engagement looking like? And this and that. And, like, then I'm just like, wait, like, that has nothing to do with anything. So, like, I need to, like, put this down and come back to it, like, when I'm, like, in the right headspace. For sure. You know? And I feel like, I feel like when you're in that right headspace, you make better content. Right, exactly. So, it's just like, I should know better, but it's funny how you get, like, tricked every time by the same thing. Um, For know? sure. For sure, for sure. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, your your production life and like that kind of thing too. Uh, probably make probably make more sense. <laughs> well, no, I want I definitely wanted to talk about like some of the TikTok stuff and like you know I feel like oh, yeah. your your big I feel like a a big part of your life is the mental health side of things fused with how TikTok kind of help bring you out of where you were you know right um yeah but i also want to talk about production because that is a huge part of you and your life i mean it's your livelihood (laughs) yeah that's it's literally my job um it's how i pay my bills um so so you started producing when you were with you and lee started kind of at the same time like doing that whole journey and when was at what point did you kind of start going off on your own and really like honing your own skills that way uh, by yourself. So, so, um, it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer because Lee and I were a partnership for a long time. Like, uh, the majority of, of our careers as producers, Mm -hmm. uh, were together. Um, we started the hourglass room together a long time ago. Um, and it was just a studio at his mom's house. Um, this was, I would say we really started getting into it in like maybe 2014 was when we actually started like getting bands that came to work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, we would just stay up really late and watch a bunch of creative lives. Um, I don't think they do those anymore, do they? Dude, I um, was all a about creative live especially yeah, like, in the early days because it was like the only way to learn things in a like a super in-depth format yeah so we loved like watching some of our favorite uh producers at the time like chris crumman did one mm-hmm. um sam pura did one um and i remember we were both like really heavily into drums like we didn't have the space to record live drums but we wanted to <laughs> yeah so we would we would watch all these creative lives on mixing drums even though like that wasn't even a resource that we had available to us at the time um but we ended up learning so much uh from those creative lives and to be honest um most of us honing our craft was just sucking at things until ultimately we were able to like figure it out like um i don't i don't really credit our knowledge of like production to anyone other than us just making really bad stuff for a really long time. Dude, Um, I feel like that is, I feel like that is what people are afraid to do. 
but it's the <laughs> only way to get extremely good. I think it's I think yeah, it's it a is. thing too where you find your own sound that way, you know? Like mm-hmm. there's so many um there's so many one-stop shop like plugins now and just like you know, uh like almost like handbooks like online where it's just like you can figure out how to make a record that sounds like Joey Sturgis, you know, or you can make a record that um, sounds like Joel Wanasek or yeah. But I have a lot of friends who are like extremely talented and like taste that. And I, I always try to like tell them, I'm just like, why don't you just like just try doing something else? <laughs> just try yeah. using different like samples or different like approaches and like try to make things that sound bad sound worse until they sound cool does mm-hmm. that make sense for yeah, sure like, basically that's 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 kind of my whole approach to production is like i use a lot of things that are like readily available to me that sound pretty bad uh and i just like mess with them until i think that they sound really cool and unique um and that's um that's kind of like how i go at it but um back to us like honing in our craft we really started our careers in probably in like 2015 um, when ultimately uh, we recorded our vault, vault 51 recorded our record with Drew out in LA. And then I remember he mixed the record and we didn't really love the way that it sounded, um, which his record sound amazing. Now I'm kind of like upset um <laughs> but at the time I, I think he was navigating like how to become a mixer himself because i mean he used to put it out there all the time he's like yeah i'm not really a mixer yeah um, he, he definitely promoted himself he, as more of a producer and songwriter back then huh so yeah my dad got hired oh, that's cool bless you're good i lost you for a second Okay. Okay. So you were you saying, yeah, yeah. He, prom- yeah, I got you. We're good. Um, yeah. So, so he was promoting himself as more of a singer, a songwriter, mixer. I mean, producer rather than a mixer. Yeah. So, so he was a writer and a producer. Um, and usually he would pass his stuff off uh, to Kyle O'Dell or like they would mix stuff together. Um, I know he mixed a good bit too, but he never claimed it. He was kind of like me uh, now, where it's like. <laughs> I mix all of the projects that I'm doing like over the last year or two, but I still don't claim to be a mixer. Um, but it's, uh, he grew into that hat, I think. Um, and now his records sound so freaking good. Um, and it's awesome to see how he's grown and that's always inspiring, but he mixed our record at the time. We didn't love how it sounded. We had Chris Crummett try it after the fact uh, and surprisingly, we still didn't like the way that it sounded. Mm. Um, and then I ended up fighting really hard with the label um, and management at the time. And they wouldn't let us mix it ourselves. Um, but Lee just ended up doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and we ultimately took a risk there, um, which may or may not have been a part of why things didn't ultimately work out, but yeah. I wouldn't take, I wouldn't change it for the world um, because 
Um, Lee's mix is the one that ended up coming out. And to be honest, I think he like literally destroyed everyone else that tried to like mix that record. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Lee's just crazy. He sent me a mix today and I, he was like, I feel like this sucks. <laughs> like, shut and, up, like, I put it on and I'm like, this is gas. Like it's just straight gas. No worries. Um, I don't know. That's always well, just like, like, you know, I mean, I get whenever he's like unsure about like the hip hop mixes or like the pop mixes, but anytime it's like time for a rock mix, he's always like, this sucks. And then it's just incredible. <laughs> I'm like, all right, bro. Uh, dude, the thing about it is though, uh, like we ultimately, you know, it's probably not a good exit to get off and get gas. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it was. <laughs> 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 Sorry, guys. Um, the thing about Lee and I is, is that, like, again, we went through years and years and years of making stuff that sucked and wasn't good and trying to get the approval of people that we saw as, like, peers, you know what I mean? Like, people that we really looked up to at the time. Um, and it just felt like we were trying and trying and trying and just never got there. So I think him and I are kind of both stuck in the mentality of like thinking that we're almost there when we are there. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I think you get stuck in that chase uh, feeling like, you know, you're trying your hardest, but it's not good enough yet. It's almost there. So like um, there's another quote that I know that I kind of live by uh, where it just says art is never finished, only abandoned, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I very much feel like you could put as much love as you want into a song or a mix, but there's just always something else that you could have done better. Yeah. You know? For uh, sure. So, yeah, it's always funny because he's going to be like, uh, does this suck? And you're going to be like, no, it doesn't suck. It's awesome. But he's still going to feel like, ah, well, it's all right. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm very much the same way. So it, it's kind of mind blowing whenever something that we do works out, I think, because we're just used to it not working out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so on average, what is your like production? What is your what is your when a band hires you to produce them? What does that generally look like for you? So um, usually my main focus is writing Um I want to write the best song possible. Um, so we'll usually sift through a bunch of demos if they have any. Uh, there are a lot of times that a band does not. <laughs> um, <laughs> or if they and, do, uh, they're not great. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're going to go to this Exxon. Uh, so, yeah. It'll start with the song first. We'll sit down with chord progressions and try to come up with the best hook possible. Uh, finish out writing the bones of the song and then we begin the arrangement. Um, I usually tend to edit and mix as I go, like through an arrangement. Um, And then by the end of it, that's usually like mix one, unless I'm like in a room that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And I'm like, I have no idea how this actually sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, Like right now is a good example as I'm driving back from making a record in Long Island uh, I was in a room that had like a hollow hardwood floor. So it Ooh. just sounded terrible. Everything um, sounded really weird. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and he told me that I could use his monitors and I'm really glad that I brought mine because he had his literally mounted on the wall. So like they were 
like two to three feet like above my head just like <laughs> directly straight out like not even at my ears or anything and i like i engineered the first day like that and was just like fuck this hmm, um yeah i ended up just bringing in a pair of hs5s and putting them on some iso acoustic mounts doing the most i could to control what i could you know mm-hmm. um we ended up going that route but um so anyway yeah like i said um I usually do everything like as I go, I'm pretty quick. I have like a, a starting point, like template for like rock stuff or heavy stuff. Um, and usually I end up making adjustments to like sounds or samples, like if the project calls for it. Um, and then usually I'll go through like one or two revisions with the band if they really feel strongly about making a change after the fact. Um, and uh, yeah, that's usually what it looks like for me. Uh, I do typically like uh, two days per song, like where I spend one really focusing on the idea of what the song is going to be, like what it's going to be, as well as like what the actual content of the song is going to be. And then we spend that whole first day on arranging. The second day we spend really honing in on like the vocals, so like the lyric and melody and top line content. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so that's usually my process. Pretty easy. That's pretty, that's pretty, I feel like that's pretty similar to you, Mad Attack. That's kind of, I feel like you might be a little bit more on the single day. You, you pretty much more focus on the, on the first day of that rather than the back half of that. But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, that's basically like, I just kind of do everything at once now. Yeah. yeah. Especially <laughs> like now that like I'm trying to work Josh, with more hip hop artists. It's just like, Josh, you usually do. Oh, sorry. Don't mean to cut you off. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, you usually do like pop centric or hip hop centric stuff, right? Like for mm-hmm. the most part. Yeah. So I, I would probably be like more or less the same. Like if I didn't have to like cut guitars and like spend mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of time tuning and like, you know, um, and then having like the bass players guitar. screw up 20 times. Yeah, dude. So I, that's what eats up so much of the time. Like in the first day, if I'm working with a band, if mm-hmm. I'm working with, if I'm working on something that's way more like pop centric and like deals with like loops or like sample flipping um, or things like that, I feel like I could probably get a lot more accomplished in a single day rather yeah. than having to like space it out. But like I ended up putting like a, a boundary where it's like I will only work like eight hours a day, especially if it's a band that is coming to me with no ideas and I'm doing all of the heavy lifting Mm-hmm. Um, cause I learned a long time ago about the consequences of burning out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. I feel like, I feel like everybody hits a point and everybody has to learn that the hard way. Yeah. I feel like that's like a rite of passage as a producer. Yeah. Agreed. Basically. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about a great company called That Pitch. Have you ever had some leftover song ideas you just didn't know what to do with? Or maybe you needed to flex that writing muscle, but you still need to get paid. Enter That Pitch, a sync licensing company that pitches your productions directly to their exclusive list of clients. That Pitch has already paid out over $120,000 to its members since October of 2020. They provide production advice, business training, and other resources to make your songs better. Go to thatpitch.com to sign up and use the code HANGOUT for 20% off your monthly or yearly subscription. So whenever you're doing stuff at your house, let's talk like 
home setup stuff? Because you do have like a home studio, really, right? It's a fully at your house setup. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. It's the same rig that I travel with, which is not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have a uh, a 2013 spec'd out uh, Mac Pro trash can uh, that Lee actually helped build for me uh, through Studio Solutions back nice. in 20. 2020 i believe um and uh i literally used that an apollo twin uh the warm audio version of the 1073 eq uh, and uh yeah everything else is in the box uh aside from obviously like the mic choice that i always go with which is usually my uh 251 clone which is also a warm audio um and then uh, Lee let me actually borrow this uh, Shure KSM mic that I kind of like almost more than the 251, which is pretty funny. Yeah, I think we talked um, about that for with Lee the other day, actually. Yeah, dude, it's, it's weird because I like swore up and down by the 251, um, which, to be honest, on almost every project I've used it for, it sounds amazing. But for my voice, which is what gets tracked like 90% of the time, like over the past six months, um, I already have a lot of like mid-rangey craziness in my voice. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the 251 is kind of built to like pull that out into the front. And I'm start- I only noticed it after I used that KSM mic. And now I- it just bothers me. So I'm like, shit, now I need to find something else for me. Yeah. But I'll but I'll keep the 251 for everyone else. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I think uh Matitech's going through a similar thing where he's like trying to find that secondary mic. Well yeah, uh, just like my my Lewitt sounds great on literally every voice that I've used it on. Like it's just like yeah. it's just in my opinion, it's like the perfect tube mic because it's still sparkly, it still sounds modern, but then it's not overly bright. Like there's a lot of times where like I'll get vocals from Lee on the 251 and I'm just like, ew. Like I just yeah, wish it was weird, tracked right? on the 840. Like the 251 sounds really good especially on like quiet voices because yeah. it has that extra like kind of saturation in the top end. But like yeah. it just doesn't really sound good on other things. Um and uh yeah, so now it's like I'm traveling a lot, and here I'll just grab this for reference. Uh, <laughs> this oh thing's God, freaking wait, huge, <laughs> dude. Yeah, so it's funny uh, that you this said is the case. It sounds it sounds great on quiet voices, which is exactly what I mean because I am the opposite of a quiet voice. So yeah. it's like whenever I like track my stuff, I always am like fighting to tame like um, like high mids, like. Somewhere around, like, there's always, like, this weird, like, almost 2.5 or 3, like, buildup on my stuff. And I'm just like, why? Spectral shaper, um, my guy. <laughs> yeah, it's just me. It's just me. But yeah, <laughs> so that mic is super big and bulky to carry around to the point where, like, it's literally my carry-on. And the yeah. case is also heavy, so it sucks carrying around on, like, layovers and stuff. So now I'm right. like, well, I want a tube mic that isn't, or a FET mic that isn't the Jay-Z I'm talking about right now. Well, this doesn't have any FETs in it, but um, I want something that's like, basically what I want is a U87 without spending four grand for a U87. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Lee and I used to use uh, Goldman's U87s when we were working at Glow in the Dark, and I think he would probably agree with me uh, where we liked the U87s a lot, but for some people, it was just way too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because of the mid-bump. So right now, I'm eyeing up the uh, the lot in uh, Atlantis because of the different voicings on it. So it gets like really dark, and then it also gets really bright, and I was like... Right. All right, well, like it's a FET mic, so it has a little bit of grit to it. Like, I think it'll be just about perfect. So I think that's going to be the secondary mic for whenever I travel. Um, because the Jay Z is really cool. It actually almost sounds like a like a C eight hundred, but you need to run it through a ton of tubes. So like at the studio, right. I'll run it through like a tube pre into like a tube compressor, and then it sort of sounds pretty cool. But like it just needs yeah. a lot of help. It's it's really compact and great for traveling, but it's just like it sounds awful otherwise. And then obviously you, in untreated rooms, it sounds bad. <laughs> how do you feel about the forty seven? I've never actually used the forty seven. Really? Um, I feel like they're really dope. They're probably the most versatile microphone because they aren't overly bright, but then they still have that really. I mean, you know, classic top end. The problem is is finding a good clone. None of the modern Telefunken mics actually sound like the old Telefunken mics, which is why, like, you know, a lot of these vocal producers, there's a Matt Rad episode with uh, Matt Beckley, who's a vocal producer, and uh, he was talking about how, you know, he was kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place. He needed a new mic, so he actually contacted Telefunken or... um, he contacted Telefunken or like the company that makes everything for Telefunken. It was it was it was the company that makes like Telefunken's parts. Yeah, he contacted them and had and had them oh, okay. custom tune a two fifty one capsule for him that he could put in a two fifty one, and then he like basically like they made it, sent it to Telefunken, and Telefunken put the mic together and sent it to him, and like I mean that's probably still like twenty grand, you know? Yeah, but it, it's yeah. just like yeah. My, it's my just like one is literally like 800 bucks or maybe close to a grand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like it, it, the only, the only expensive new mic that you can buy that sounds good in my opinion is the C 800. And so like when you're looking at like all these U 47s, like the Telefunken U 47 sound pretty good, but in my opinion, the fleas sound even better um, from the demos I've heard. I've yet to try one in person, but those guys are crazy and they actually like build these things to spec and try to get them as vintage sounding as possible because ultimately like a lot of people think that like the U47 is super dark but it, it really isn't a dark microphone because back in the day all of those tube mics were popular because of how bright they were and how they retained their quality whenever put on tape so that's that's something I've thought about too is getting a, uh, a flea I've, yeah, I've only had experience with the uh, with the warm audio clone, which I think is uh, sitting at least because uh, mm. I think it's Landon's. Uh, yeah, it sounds pretty good. But I liked it a lot. I, I used it, yeah, I used it one time, and I actually really liked the way that it sounded. Part of me was thinking about snagging it, but um, I don't know. The other part of me was like really leaning into just getting that sure KSM because uh, that mic just sounds great. It just uh, sounds really just, good. Yeah, for my stuff, it just like has this like really tame like mid range thing that I love when it comes to my stuff because um, I don't know it just makes all of like the aggressive bits just feel a little bit more rounded off, just a little smoother. Um, so it's like I like using 
my big thing is like source. Like if whatever you're using at the source sounds great and you don't have to do a bunch of surgery to it after the fact, like that's going to be my choice 10 out of 10. Well, another thing that might be an issue with your voice is the fact that you're running a warm 1073 because like 1073s in general sound really bad on uh, people with upper mid range issues. And then combining that with the warm one, which is going to be a little bit more harsh sounding than say like a BAE. um, Maybe you should check into using a different preamp. Yeah, it's kind of funny though because it's like I really love uh, like tracking guitars like with the 1073 that I I have. love guitars on a 1073, dude. It's not so good. It just like tames all the griff stuff. Yeah, and it just like adds this like color and like warmth to the tone. It just sounds fucking pissed off and I love it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's like if I got rid of that preamp, like I don't know, I, I don't have to to get rid of it but i mean if i didn't upgrade my interface which i probably wouldn't because it would not for a while i'd probably just go with the quad if i did because i just have the twin right now but um i wouldn't want to toggle between the two um but i want to find a great preamp that kind of like does it all yeah Um, but i don't know that 1073 has worked out so much for me like especially um with like aggressive music, like, especially like I, I track a lot of like screamy vocalists, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I track a lot of like really aggressive guitars and, um, I don't know that that pre has worked out, but to be honest, you're right though, because I have tracked myself on a different pre. Um, I can't remember which one it was. It was a buddy of mine that had it. Um, God, it was like silver. It was honestly huge. But it wasn't the Avalon. Oh, yeah. I'm about to say, I'm staring at my Avalon on my desk right now. Yo, was it maybe a Chandler? (laughs) Say what? Was it maybe a Chandler? It might have been. Those things are big. Yeah, it had, like, the VU on it because it had, like, a built-in, like, uh, comp. Uh Um, I can't remember what it was for the life of me. But but it's funny because it did sound a little bit better. Um, but I tend, I tend, you can ask Lee this, uh, I tend to push a little too much, uh, with the gain on the 73. Um, mm-hmm. I get kind of like weirded out when I don't like, cause even though it sounds cleaner, if I were to go way less hard on the gain and a little bit harder on the output, like, um, it doesn't like, it doesn't sound as aggressive to me. And like, no matter what kind of music I'm making, my ear always bends that way. Uh, like I always want to hear that characteristic. Um, could could it potentially be maybe trying different tubes? Is because is the ten seventy three a tubed? Uh, yeah. So yeah. So, so wait, maybe. Wait, what'd you say? Trying different tubes. Uh, ten seventy threes don't have tubes in them. Okay. Fat. Yeah. See. Ask ask me anything about gear, and and you'll probably get so nowhere. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> I think for for an aggressive thing, trying something with tubes in it, I think for your voice, especially that's like really mid range, upper mid rangey, could be really cool and flattering to your voice yeah, too. I, I remember I hadn't tracked myself really, but I think Lee did. But there was this black lion uh, that Goldman had too. That was really freaking cool. And then uh, there was, obviously, we had, like, the Avalon 
Um, but we never ended up really liking the Avalon very much. Every time we used it, it was just like extremely kind of just like tinny or like bright, especially on singers that we were tracking at the time because they were mm-hmm. like really, really clean, like seedy kind of voices. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think we were always chasing like a bulkier sound, but that was our issue is that we were always trying to chase something with the wrong tools. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, uh, something that um, me and Josh have really me and Matt have really tried to push to on the podcast especially is like take your time and figure out the things that firstly have a goal in mind with your sound right if you don't have a goal in your mind and you're just buying stuff to buy stuff like that's gonna run you into the ground financially in a terrible terrible way but also oh yeah once you have that goal in mind really like being particular about your sound that you want to achieve and not really settling, like being willing to put in the time and money, right. like do the tests and the split tests between different preamps and microphones and combinations and stuff. Yeah. My taste yeah. always changes with the wind. I, uh, <laughs> I, I will always buy, like I'll buy the setup that I need to accomplish what I want to at the time. So like I used to have like this M6 with Fishman fluence in it. I had the 73 pre, I had the 76 and a two a, and that was kind of like all I really needed that in the 251. And then it's like, all of a sudden I start like feeling like, uh, like I don't like this bite or like, I feel like I ended up in a box where all of my stuff just sounds the same. And like, I start liking other things. So instead of like adding to my gear collection, I'll just be like, I'll just swap this out um, and get something else. So at the time, like I was just over like having a set of fluids and I was like, I want single coils. So I ended up just getting a strap after that. Um, I didn't look back at my entire guitar sound and ended up changing. Um, and then now I'm like, I just tracked an M6 again for the first time in like two years in Long Island. And I was like, I like this way better than the single coils. So like now <laughs> part of me is just like, oh, I'll just like swap them out again. But it's just like, I don't know. I like, I get scared of financial risk like that, where I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm making enough uh, every year I pay one of the people I on afford to like do what I do but like I don't make enough to be like I want to I want to try a new preamp but I don't want to get rid of the 73 so I'm going to just get something else on top of that or uh, you know what I mean like if I just start like collecting gear like it just becomes a slippery slope where like eventually I sell half of it anyway yeah <laughs> for sure so we, we've been trying to figure out there is I think also a- OCD like takes over Oh yeah, for sure. I, I was gonna say I yeah, think like OCD takes over where change. Change gets mm-hmm. operate in this one box in this one lane. So like I get kind of like afraid of taking risks. I always end up taking them anyway at the end of the day, but it takes me quite some time to get there. Yeah. No, I, I get that. I totally see that. The um so yeah, I I think me and we've been talking about like we wish there was a way that you could like 
rent gear to try because we've been running in it we were talking about this with speakers too like we really wish there yeah. was a way to get in gear to your space and try it out in a real scenario you can if you know people well you can if you know people but like most Where's people can't do that everyone's getting ex machinas <laughs> yeah all, all i'm gonna say is uh my a really good buddy of mine from high school was working at sweetwater um, and if you work for Sweetwater, you can do that. They'll literally let you take whatever you want home, like on rent, um, for like next to nothing, which I thought was like really freaking cool. But yeah. yeah, if you don't live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, working for Sweetwater, you're out of luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I really wish there was a way, especially for because production is becoming such a at home big solo thing that. I, I really wish there was a way that we could have access to test gear. Um, especially it's like, oh, I want to rent this for... And I guess there are probably ways that you can rent gear from places, maybe. But like, I want to rent this to test it out for like a, a real session. Like, I'm really interested in these couple preamps, and I'm I want to so I want to rent them for like a couple days to shoot them out. Um, right. That's, that's kind yeah, of hard that to that's kind of hard to do unless you're like in a bigger city right yeah I mean that's like, that's kind of something that I would do like if I wanted to try a new piece of gear what I would do is just like sell whatever I was using uh, at the time and just get it and if I didn't like it I would just sell it again <laughs> and get something else yeah. like I would just play merry-go-round with like all of my gear until I found stuff that I really liked. Um, so that's kind of how I did it. Cause it was like, there's no real loss unless you're like looking to like really upgrade, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Unless you're like, Oh shit. Like I got to add like two or three grand on top of whatever. Like I sell just to try this thing out. So like, it would be like really handy to have like a place where you could do that. But I wonder like how high the risk is for, a business like that to do that and like wear down their gear over time. And so the value is just gone. Well, oh yeah. No, I'm sure. Brands, like if you're buying like something that's like expensive, then typically you could hit them up and they have demo units that they'll be able to send out to you. That's like how people are. Yeah. Like that's how, that's how people are able to try out like speakers PMCs and ATCs that are $20,000 before they buy them. Yeah. It's just, most people are going to be like, yeah, we'll send out this, you know, $1,500 preamp. Like a lot of places won't do that, but speakers, especially you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, like PMC, that's how they do it nowadays. I don't know how they get them to other parts of the country that isn't LA, but you just hit <laughs> up PMC. Yeah. You're able to do it. Like Seth had, uh, ex machina sent to him and he was able to demo them for a couple weeks in his, in his studio, you know? See, I feel like I miss out so much on things that are happening in the gear world because, like, I'm so much more, like, composition and arrangement focused. Like, I exist in my studio with, like, the bare essentials. Like, Yeah, I see, I only – same here. Like, that's how I am. I always have the bare essentials. But, like, the only things I honestly care about are speakers and uh, vocal chains because I'm always just, like – like I want to be, I I want to be the best vocal producer in the world. Like I want to be able to have a vocal that I recorded and mixed, and be like, yes, this competes with my favorite yeah. vocal mixes. And that's all I know about Uh-oh. here. Uh oh. Is that you guys? There no, you no, just Josh. Just Matt. Okay. 
Oh, just me? Yeah, I totally get that because I'm in the same headspace. Like, vocal yeah. production is my game. Uh, vocal production is totally my game, and uh, I want to be the best at that that I can be. But it's kind of funny because I've learned um, using less always is more. <laughs> yeah, I like, know, uh, for sure. Like, I feel like when I got wrapped up in, like, trying to figure out how to like achieve a sound i always felt like it was just so much more than it actually was um Mm -hmm. and i feel like really what you need to obtain a great vocal is just a great mic a great pre solid interface with great conversion and a great singer well and i was gonna i was gonna say i think a lot of the times we as producers and engineers do we get caught in the trap of this mic is sick and this preamp is sick and this compressor is sick when a lot of times it's like you need sometimes you just need to sing better yeah that's a fact i mean i don't know i've tracked a lot of really bad singers in my day Mm -hmm. uh and i would always like kind of hit myself over the head wondering what i could have done to like make it better um but really, it's just like when you get a singer that's actually good, uh, you have to do way less work in terms mm-hmm. of like gain staging and compression because it's almost like they just have it right, like from their mouth. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, well, and and really, even, it's like really it's almost like preamps are doing they're accentuating. So you're trying to like do a better job of bringing out the positives of this already really great vocal. And that's like what a mic and a preamp and a compressor is kind of supposed to do in those scenarios. Um, so yeah, I, I I do, I do find myself like, Oh, it's really cool. Like I want to try this microphone and I want to try, you know, maybe this new preamp. Like I have an Avalon. I really like it for some things, but sometimes maybe I want like something a little dirtier. So maybe I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about a 1073 or something like in yeah. that kind of range. Um, right. so what, cause my tube, I have my tube like good. I'm good on that. So, um, the, <laughs> I, I get all into that space, but then I'm like, if, but if the vocalist is just not good, then none of that's going to matter. And the song's going to suck regardless. And even if the song's bad, like if the yeah. songwriting's bad. <laughs> yeah, dude, at, at that point, like not even going to lie. Sometimes I just toss gain reduction on the channel. Don't touch the settings. I send it off to a pull tech to round out all the stuff I don't want to hear outside of the vocal that I already don't want to hear. <laughs> and uh, call it a day, dude. Because, I mean, there are some things that, like, just can't be helped. Like, it's it's it sucks because it becomes a game of, like, moral dilemma where you're like, I want to feel like I did everything I could for this person. But at the end of the day, like, how much can I really do? Um, you know, to kind of polish a turd, you know, as much as yeah. like, we don't want to admit it. It's just like, you know, there's only so much that you can do. And I do a lot of turd polish. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that's what most people do, you know, but um, it's just it makes tracking big vocalists better when you do get them. Because you're oh. just like, oh, dang. Okay, cool. I can I can work my ass off on this great vocal um and it's gonna turn out great i don't have to like sit here and worry or play 21 questions in my head on 
how to make this passable, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. The, what, what's something maybe that you see from like, from you working with a lot of people, what are some things that you kind of see that are the most repeat offense things? Like, you know, like, uh, songwriting faux pas that you see that are like, we got to stop doing this or like singing things that you're like, no, nah, we can't be doing this. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh man. Um, bad lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's like, that's my biggest pet peeve. Uh, um, th- uh, that and, um, I mean, really mic technique like bothers me a lot. Um, okay. That's, that's one thing that I think that maybe we can all agree on here. Uh, For that sure. That might make sense. But um, nine times out of ten, like, uh, that's the most frustrating thing for me is, like, trying to capture uh, a take from singers that don't really know anything about anything. Yeah, I was going to say, I would, love, I would love for you just – to like kind of deep dive on that for a second. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, communicating becomes like a really big part of like recording vocals for me where it's like, okay, like I need to know like the dynamics of what's about to happen in this take Mm -hmm. so that I can capture it accurately. Like, uh, a big thing that a lot of singers do is they like, they kiss the mic, like where it's like, you're really just like killing that capsule. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, um, especially with like a really aggressive vocal, like um, trying to communicate like where somebody should stand, like how far out from the mic they should be, and like how prepared I should be to capture that uh, is like probably the most important thing uh, in a recording session for me. Um, because, like I said, I I track a lot of aggressive vocals, but it's kind of funny because the dynamic in rock and metal is so like polar opposite sometimes uh, mm-hmm. where there's like kind of a lot of like really intimate vocal and then there's a lot of like big dynamic um so like compressing that becomes kind of a challenge in the right way and especially capturing it so it's like i think teaching um teaching your singers exactly how to approach the microphone uh, in different settings and styles of vocal is like extremely important and i think singers stop kissing the microphone unless it really calls for it dude yeah i i totally i definitely agree with that i've i've seen like an up an especially uptick of that with the rise of like more indie feeling pop music like your billy eilish or your lana del rey's and stuff like that where like people feel like they just need to be like literally licking the capsule (laughs) yeah and i think i mean I'll be the first to admit I'm a massive Billie Eilish fan. Um, but I think it started a wave of everyone singing as quiet as they possibly could. Yeah. Which is also like the biggest challenge on earth to try and capture. Uh, Lee and I actually engineered a song together a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a group, it was like a hip hop group called Pink Elephants. It was a song called Sound of Violence. And, uh, was it that one? I think it was where like the verses are like basically like whispered and like the the singer was like hell bent 
on doing it that way. And I remember Lee just being like, Oh my God, fuck. Like, yeah. Like just like trying to like gain it right to where like we were tracking in an open room, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, we were like, how do we like comp this the right way where we're like, we're not going to be like making the noise floor super ugly that's what I was like, going to say. That sounds like a noise floor nightmare, which is like most of the time, not something you really think about. Yeah. Until you get a, a vocal <laughs> so quiet. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be honest. Lee was the lifesaver there because I don't think I would have been able to like, I, I don't know. He just crushed that. I don't think I would have been able to like do it in a way that sounded as clean as it came out on the other side. And it really, it took a lot of attention to detail when tracking it. It got to the point I think I was steering the ship and tracking vocals on that whole project. And like I, he ended up being the guy to engineer all of that because it was just so meticulous. Um, and every take ended up being like microscoped. Jeez. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would never want to do that again. Luckily we're in a place now where like we both have booths. Um, yeah. <laughs> but mine, mine is a little bit more uh, shanty than his um, yeah uh, mine is literally in a closet that's like completely dead as as much as i possibly could yeah um, well dude yeah i feel like you're very much in the like true home studio fashion oh yeah dude i'm in an apartment like legit uh it kind of sucks because uh all of my low end goes to my downstairs neighbor i legitimately cannot hear it it's awful oh. um but i know I know where everything like should live, like mm-hmm. based on like how I've set my template as far as like where bass should live, where the kick drum should live. And then I'll always go into my car where I know what everything sounds like, you know, yeah. which is like the tried and true yeah. home studio guy car test mix, you know, yep. what I mean? like, um, and that's just kind of how I run things. And like, um, yeah, I, I literally track in my closet and I have somehow managed to stuff an entire queen size mattress in there, uh, along with like four really, really thick comforters. Thank God the floor is carpeted heavily. And, <laughs> um, I also have another comforter, like literally across the ceiling that's like draped and catching all of those reflections. So like it is completely silent in there. It's like really strange, but it's also really nice. Cause, um, I can I can go as intimate as I want, like in those types of settings, and not have to worry about like anything crazy, any reflections. Um, and I can go as crazy as I want with aggressive vocals and not catch, you know, my walls or my ceiling. For um, sure, I make do what I have. Yeah, um, well, I, like, you do it great. I appreciate that. Yeah, part of me is I get so nervous like coming on production podcasts because I'm just like, dude, I feel like like I am such a a scrub. Like I. <laughs> I do not have any like advantages with like a treated space um, or like a treated booth or anything like that. I just like, I just take my stuff and go wherever and make records like everywhere and anywhere that I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest, I I feel like way more than a producer. I'm just like a scummy band dude in disguise who just knows knows his way around Cubase, you know, Um, for sure. Thankfully, and thankfully has a resource, um, as good as, uh, as Lee Rouse. Cause, um, 
anytime anything goes wrong, he's the first person I bother. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like more than anything nowadays, it's not necessarily gear and it's not even necessarily like rooms or anything like that. It's it's ear and taste. I feel like those are the kings of, of the current music industry. I agree a hundred percent because I think uh like I said, my entire like production angle has always been like creative. It's never been uh it's never been measured with like gear or like a precise fundamental understanding on like how and why compression and EQ works the way it does. I genuinely know that those are like essential tools. So I use them and I just kind of, I literally mess around until I'm like, okay, that sounds right to me. You know, well, yeah, um, you've done enough trial and error in your career at this point that you know what you're listening for. I think that's a, an issue that a lot of younger people and like newer to music, like production people don't know is they just haven't spent enough time a being like, what happens when I do this? What happens when I do this? Like heavier threshold, right. uh, like heavier on the threshold, clamp it a little hot, hotter, but with like a lighter ratio versus heavier ratio, lighter, like what those sound like. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because uh, like earlier in our conversation when you were like, uh, try tubes. Does the 73 have tubes? And I'm like, uh, I think so, maybe. And then Josh is like, no, they don't have tubes. And I'm like, uh, see, I have like, it's weird. Like my entire production approach is strictly creative. Like I, I have like no, almost zero fundamental knowledge on like how or why these like pieces of gear work the way that they they do. Um, I could act like I did know, you know what I mean? (laughs) But I feel like that would just be a waste of everyone's time. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's just not, Um, I mean, it's not, I would rather have a conversation with you about stuff that you do know and are comfortable with too. But it's, it's just so funny because I think like the fundamental of a great recording should be great source sounds. Like if your guitar tone Mm -hmm. sounds great, like on the way in, then it sounds great. If your vocal sounds great on the way in, then it sounds great. And either way you slice that, no matter like what plugin you end up using or anything like, um, that should be your like foundation of how to produce a track in my opinion like for sure i i have a yeah for sure i i the some of the best i mean me and uh me and my buddy me and chris davis were talking about this i mentioned him uh, beforehand but uh he me and him were saying that like some of the best di's guitar di's specifically that we have ever heard have been from i think it was the guitarist of currents the band currents like di sent some guitar di's or something to him for something and it's literally a focus right 2i2 direct in off of a guitar and it's just a really great guitar a really good pickups and dude can just play extremely well yeah and that counts way more than any like amp sim or anything like you know what i mean like the player is everything in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's like you could, (laughs) that's why certain tones don't work for certain people. You know, like Misha Mansoor has his own like tone pack or whatever that I'm sure like sound fantastic when he plays, but I know plenty of people that use it, same settings and it sounds like dog shit, you know, but it, it all comes down to like 
the actual meat and potatoes. And I made this analogy yesterday. It made my friend laugh because uh, <laughs> we're both like very like-minded producers when it comes to like, we are not really the guys that like that mix and polish everything. And like, we're like the finishing guys. Like we're the guys that like start at the bottom and create something that's malleable that like everyone else can kind of play around with and work with. So like I kind of compared ourselves to like chicken at Popeye's, like without us, like we are just like the gelatinous meat that gets sent to Popeye's. <laughs> and, then, and then everyone else adds like their batter and their seasoning. And then somebody else like fries it. And then what you eat is a product of everybody's hard work put together and everybody's mind put together. And we're okay with just being the weird squishy stuff that nobody knows if it's actually chicken or not. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not really producers. We're just artists who like figured out how to like work around um, the tools that we were given, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so like for me, it's, it's Cubase. Uh, I know how to work and edit extremely well in Cubase. Um, and I, uh, I know how to work my way around a 1073 pre I'm really comfortable with it and I understand mm -hmm. it. Um, and I know what the dynamics of the microphone that I use on 90% of my projects is like. And as long as I'm familiar with those things, like I can send, I can confidently send my projects to other people knowing that like, they're going to get something that's totally workable. Um, and even if it takes me getting things to the finish line, I make sure that my understanding of those things is finite and I can finish it off by just using additional tools that I also understand, which like all of this sounds like a long winded way of saying, I guess I do know how to produce and mix. I just don't admit it, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I feel like it's just hard for me to admit that like, or like claim that I really understand what I'm doing when it comes to mixing, because there's so much that I genuinely don't. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised by things that people like Lee or Josh or other people show me um, that I just genuinely don't understand. But I think it's the power to be okay with not understanding it. You know? well, I, think it's, um, I think it's being a forever student is a part of that. Being a student yeah. of the game always. Never, never saying, oh, well, I've arrived. I know everything about music production, you know? Right. Right. There's so, there's so much about production that completely goes over my head. Um, and, uh, that's okay. Cause I think a lot of things that I know now were totally over my head two years ago, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool where like home studios have gotten for people where like, I don't know, it's become a really easily accessible and understandable tool for a lot of people to just be creative and put their art out there. You yeah. know, um, I feel like I'm one of those people that got fortunate enough to live in the time of all of this coming up because um, I literally could not work in the A room at Goldman's place because it just gave me anxiety. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot. It was a lot. We did a, we did a couple singles there and it was a lot to, uh, I don't know, yeah. just like I, every, it was I, just a I, lot. <laughs> yeah. I don't know my way around a console at all. I'm sure that if I, if I spent enough time, like kind of 
trying to just understand it one piece at a time, I think that eventually it would click. But like, I was like, I have no idea how to go use that one piece of gear in the rack and route it to this like board and route that to Pro Tools because I didn't, I don't use Pro Tools either. So like all of it was just like daunting. Oh yeah. Luckily, uh, Lee and I worked in a partnership where like he understood all of that and he's just like a sponge um, for information like that. So like somebody could show him something once and he's got it. Like for me, for me, it takes repeat failure. (laughs) for sure until eventually i get it for sure Um, the um so i think let's uh let's pivot a little bit dude let's talk about the record ah uh (laughs) so my my record your record my record um okay so um i started uh it kind of took me a while to like understand that uh those followers that I've accrued over the last year were real. Like, cause <laughs> I don't, there's some, uh, like I said, uh, I think you get so stuck in the idea of chasing, uh, success that it never actually happens to you in your mind, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it kind of took me a while. I started in January making like TikToks and stuff. And then, um, it had done decent, but I was also going through my own struggles, uh, I was doing EMDR and uh, like trauma therapy work and it was grueling. Um, And so I just wasn't in the headspace to write music or accept the fact that I had like an actual opportunity to succeed. Yeah. Um, So I didn't start writing until June. And then I think I wrote, I wrote one song in June and then I just could not write another one until I think maybe August. Um, Cause I think I was just way too in my head. Um, it just felt like everything that I was doing or going to do was just doomed, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's been a very slow process because I want everything to be like as raw and real as I can make it. Um, and as true to like my life uh, as I can possibly make it because I'm so jaded from working on a lot of uh, just not good music. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like things that don't really hold any like emotional value to people. It's really strange. Like I think a lot of like artists and musicians just want to be somebody. They don't really have anything to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so I, I kind of wanted to like beat that, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's like, if I'm going to have my place uh, and take up space in the market where somebody else could really be adding value to the world, then like, I want to make something true. Um, Mm -hmm. So right now I'm sitting on five songs that I really love that are done. Um, But it's just taken me so long uh, because it's just, I think I'm putting too much pressure on myself. Yeah. Uh, because I, I don't know. It's like, I'm the guy that everybody said like on TikTok, like they love my voice and, and what I do. And it's like, I'm so afraid of like writing the wrong thing, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. I or can just see that. Like, or putting out music that like might just be a disappointment to all those people. And like, I don't know. I understand the, 
the weight and value of a first impression, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that oftentimes scares me. And also like, obviously I'm a producer. It's the best production I've ever put out, you know, Mm -hmm. like, cause it's, it's mine. (laughs) Yeah. It it needs Um, to be, it needs to be like, here's the stake in the ground. This is Josh Landry's music. Right. Yeah. And that's tough, you know, um, finding myself sonically, I think was like the most difficult and still is the most difficult part of this whole venture because, um, I don't really walk the traditional line of like rock music, which is where I think everybody kind of expects me to live. Um, I like a lot of weird, moody, alternative music. Um, like I said earlier, I'm a massive fan of like Billie Eilish. Uh, I love like eight graves and missio um and a lot of things that are just like kind of out there and just really dark Um, yeah but i also love i come from all of the roots of like the early 2000s like emo rock like music scene uh, yeah where like you know armor for sleep or amberlin or afi or my chemical romance Mm -hmm. or um that whole like world existed. So what I'm trying to do with my music is uh, I think find where those two highways intersect, you know? Um, Yeah. And write something that like has the moodiness and like sound design of like the alternative stuff that I really love, but has the heart and like the realness of like all of like the early 2000 emo stuff that like I grew up loving and like the music that really shaped me and caused me to chase music in the first place, you know? For sure. No, I get that. I love that. That's, and I feel like those two things are avenues that people haven't really combined or at least that I've seen and also avenues that are under, I don't want to say undervalued, but underappreciated together. Yeah. I, um, that's my thing is there's like this whole, like, emo revival in the hip-hop scene which is super like cool yeah um, that's something i, I never th- thought that would happen those are two worlds that like never crossed my mind that would meet not at all but, but it's kind of cool how it happened and so like i don't know i um now that you kind of put it that way uh i guess you're right i guess i don't really know anything that like has like crossed those two genres yeah, of like that, like moody alternative world and that emo lane. Cause uh, I don't know, but that made me like smile. Cause now I'm like excited. Cause I'm like, Oh, like, did I do something new? Yeah, <laughs> like, dude. Well, no, I think, I think you're onto something for sure. Like it's definitely a lane that in my mind doesn't exist. Uh, or at least yeah. not doesn't exist in a strong popular music kind of way. Yeah. I, um, I'm interested to see what people's opinion of it is. To be honest, I, I think it's going to go over a lot of people's heads at first, but I hope that it eventually clicks. It's kind of funny. Um, hopefully, my management doesn't listen to this, but it's okay if they do. They'll they'll probably chuckle. They'll probably chuckle. But I don't even think my managers like get it because uh, one of them uh, is like very like he and art a lot of like traditional rock. Um, mm-hmm. So I think like, I think he expects me to walk that lane and kind of like wants me to walk like 
a very specific lane. Um, Luke, at least, uh, yeah. my other manager, like, he just loves the songs where he's just like, he's like, I love how you like always deliver me bangers. And I'm like, trust me, there are a hundred other ones that never reached your inbox and they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least he's just like here for the songs. And he's like, I think this is really cool. And the songs are great. And that's what counts. But I think um, there's a lot that kind of starts to get to me with like trying to do something new where I'm just like, do people even like, are people going to get it? You know, but I think you kind of have to take that dive and just put something out there that you think is cool. And like, you know, just be you like I was talking about earlier, you know, I mm -hmm. think that's the most important thing. Well, and like I said, keep trying people keep trying to sway me out of it. Yeah. I, I was going to say, like I said, I feel like your, your followers are there for you because that's what you've done since the beginning. So I feel like whatever that you're, right. I feel like whatever you do, they're going to buy into it. Yeah, I hope so. Because I mean, not only it's exciting to think about like crossing genres and like making something new and, and mm -hmm. unique, but like the songs at their bones are songs about my life and um, like songs about, you know, um, recovering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, mm -hmm. which has been uh exceptionally difficult probably the most difficult thing i've ever had to do in my life um and uh i'll uh i'll tell a short story on that um yeah so that it all kind of clicks uh but in uh in the summer of 2020 um i had basically gotten to a point where i wasn't leaving my house um I was having panic attacks when I drove uh, over bridges or anything like that. And at the time I lived in New Orleans, uh, which is like just one giant bridge system. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Roads. Literally massive bridges, the biggest bridges I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it got to a point where I stopped leaving my house. I, I wasn't driving. I wasn't doing anything. And I was like really struggling, uh, with anxiety and depression and stress at the time I was, uh, fighting for a record that I had rightfully deserved to produce. Um, the band had gotten signed to a major, uh, label off of some songs that I had written and produced, uh, with the band. And, uh, they were trying to shake me off and out of the project really hard. Uh, and, I remember I was just going through a lot during that time and it got to the point where like I wasn't doing well at all. I wasn't like managing my emotions at, at all very well. And I wasn't getting out of bed certain days. Um, so I decided to go see a doctor about it. Um, and uh, it was right after the pandemic had first begun. So like the shutdown, it just started mm -hmm. in the office. Um, so I had to basically use uh, this app called Lemonade, um, where it's basically for people who don't have health insurance, but you pay like a monthly fee and it includes like your doctor's uh, visits, your prescriptions, all of it uh, for like a really affordable lump sum every month. Um, so I had seen a doctor. Um, she had prescribed me Prozac and uh Basically, two days into taking it, uh, I had a band in the studio and I had an adverse reaction uh, to the medication. 
and uh, basically had a psychogenic seizure. Uh, and uh, yeah, it traumatized me. Uh, it was really, really scary. Um, and I, uh, I couldn't like use nicotine or caffeine anymore, which is like that for like 10 years. Mm. Like functioned off of that highly for 10 years while working with like bands and working graveyard shifts and like all kinds of like crazy hours and um, doing the normal so, musician band uh, thing. Uh, right. Uh, which is just being extremely unhealthy, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, after um, after that seizure had happened, I had, like I couldn't speak uh, for a while. Uh, I couldn't really leave my house. Uh, I couldn't see people. Uh, I was basically like withdrawing from it and like going through this weird like psychosis. Like it, it was, it felt like it never ended. Uh, it took me like, man, it took me like eight months to like kind of get back to a normal headspace. Uh, it was, it sucked, man. I couldn't concentrate at all. So I couldn't work. Um, I couldn't be creative. Uh, so I wasn't making any money. Uh, I had to sell a bunch of my gear, like, uh, my 1176 and my 2A that I had just bought. I literally used it one time. Uh, had to sell that stuff. had to sell a bunch of my guitars and, um, everything just to keep paying bills and stay afloat. Eventually it got to a point where I was like completely dysfunctional, had run out of money. Um, and, uh, like my relationship had failed. Uh, like it was just, it was a mess. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that, that kind of all began like the, uh, met, um, this wonderful lady named Kathy, uh, fence to maker from Pennsylvania who, uh, extended me access to the resources I needed, like therapy and, um, and a psychiatrist at the time. Um, and if it weren't for her, I don't think I ever would have gotten back to work. And I definitely would not have started the TikTok thing. And you and I definitely would not be sitting here. Um, and so <clears throat> basically every song, uh, that I've put together so far has like been about, uh, those experiences. And I remember where I was, uh, mentally and how much I needed to just know that somebody else understood what was happening to me because I did it. Um, and so my music is, is pretty much strictly for those people. Um, and for my, and it's a form of EMDR where, uh, EMDR is exposure therapy, uh, where it's like, I'm kind of confronting all of these things that are still very much triggers, uh, for me, but it's in a, it's in a format that's familiar and not scary to me. So it's almost like I get to write all of these things and then be able to listen to them, um, and process them in a safe way, mm -hmm. uh, to almost like disarm, um, PTSD. And that's, that's how you recover from it. Yeah. By the way, is, uh, confronting, uh, these traumas, um, and that, that can be grueling. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I got lucky that I'm a musician and I'm a producer and I'm capable of like doing EMDR in that format. It's done a lot for me. Um, so yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, like I 
management and a lot of other people try to sway me into like walking a safer lane. But I think it's more important for me to put out music actually true to me and mean something and could help somebody that's, you know, in a really bad spot at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah I, for sure. I mean, just from a personal, I think you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. And I think you sticking in what is true to you is going to be the best thing, not only for you, but for the kinds of people that you are trying to like speak to. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, um, one big thing about like mental health disorders, especially like, uh, the more intense ones like PTSD, OCD, intrusive thought, um, you know, uh, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. they're very much like misunderstood by people who haven't experienced what that's like. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's very difficult to like communicate it. So I think it's important for people to like hear these songs and crazy how much even those people like don't understand it really validate your experiences mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the most important like puzzle pieces to recovery for anyone those people feeling understood you know for sure for sure um so dude i'm i'm really excited to hear like what you what you come out with and like what you're what you're what you're working on um what are as we're kind of like wrapping up a little bit uh what are some stuff that you are super stoked on for the year uh so i'll tell you guys first i haven't said anything on the internet yet uh my first single comes out on january 28th and subsequently every four weeks there's going to be a song dropping uh and it's been just a very long waiting game for me and like a lot of anxiety about what people will think. So I'm just excited to get all of that off my chest and be busy all year. You know what I mean? Like just doing something for me. Yeah. Um, because I've spent the past however many years, like seven or eight, like appeasing other people and like helping them create their art. And like, mm. it's just like a breath of fresh air for me to like myself do it in a format that's like really fun um and expressive you know yeah so like that's like the big thing for 2022 is actually getting focused on like like where i've wanted my whole life you know like yeah above i got lucky with production and an understanding of it and um growing up with also we're like hungry to learn just be able to like show other people their art in like the best sounding format possible, you know? Um, yeah. So I kind of got lucky uh, and accidentally roped into the production game, if I'm honest, uh, <laughs> like actually, and that's why I'm more of a writer than an engineer or a mixer because, you know, that's who I am. Um, and I think I finally get to be that this year, you know? So yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. This will be uh this episode will drop in the beginning of March. So you should have two songs out by then. Right. Yep, I will. And 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's gonna be awesome. My uh, my artist name is gonna be Low Spirit, uh, just L O Spirit, and um, yeah, those those first two songs are like really important. But honestly, there's like there's three more subsequent ones that I am just like so freaking stoked that I like can't even like keep myself sitting still. <laughs> I'm like yeah. so stoked on those three songs. So. Um, yeah, man. And hopefully old Matatech over here uh, gets to write with me soon. Yeah. We're going yeah, to get, gonna get him down to Atlanta soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, dude. But just, you know, talk shop, do what dudes do. <laughs> for sure. For sure. The... um. I'm going to put your, well, it, I guess your, some of your handles and stuff might change and things like that. But, um, as of right now, it's, it's at sad songs only on TikTok and it's at, I am Josh Landry, uh, on Instagram, um, as of recording, (laughs) we'll, we'll, I'll link, I'll Uh, link your actual like artist stuff whenever all of that starts rolling out. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, but yeah, they definitely will change. So good looks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know. I, I figured that might happen. So gonna, gonna reference the old ones just in case, but also the new ones will be in, uh, in the description of the podcast and also, uh, on the YouTube, it'll be in the description of this episode. Hey everyone, this is Andrew real quick, just jumping in to say Josh has actually released his song Blue under the name Low Spirit, uh, L-O space spirit, S-P-I-R-I-T. So if you wanted to go check it out, feel free to go search Low Spirit and the song Blue um, or check out the link in the description to find quick links to go find it and make sure to follow him on TikTok and on Instagram at low.spirit. Thanks for this little cut away. Now back to the episode. Uh, Josh, bro, I'm super stoked that uh, we got to hang out with you on this little drive. Uh, I think I lost you. You're good. I was saying I'm super stoked that we got to hang out on your little drive. Oh yeah, man. It's kind of, it's kind of hilarious how like, I don't know, this whole podcast is like kind of centered around like production and like, this is just my life in production. It's just like traveling and constantly like being on the road, trying to get home from some distant faraway place. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of bummed that we didn't talk about, um, I should have brought up this record that I did where i literally drove all the way to salt lake city from atlanta well listen Uh, what we can do we'll have you back on after stuff starts dropping and we'll just we'll just chat about like stories and production stuff and we'll talk about new songs and releases and all that stuff oh yeah man that'll be great and then again hopefully at that point too i'm sure that there's like a lot of like ramble that you're gonna like sort and like edit through <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we'll uh we'll just we'll just yeah we'll we'll go full send on the uh 
on the ADHD, like just all of it. Just let it go. I'll start us on a topic and we'll just ramble. <laughs> Perfect. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, but yeah, dude, Josh, thank you so much for coming and talking and hanging out and being here with us today. Yeah, man, I appreciate you guys having me on. Ben's a bunch. Uh, I love talking. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. We are super grateful for all of everybody's time and attention that you know listens uh on a week-to-week basis uh once again both joshes thank you much for being here and uh we'll see you guys next week bye